0: Welcome back to What Were You Thinking, in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival. Throughout the series, I try to speak to a variety of voices from within Westminster, but also outside. And this episode, I am joined by Caroline Lucas MP, former leader of the Green Party and MP for Brighton Pavilion since 2010. She also served as MEP for a period, although interestingly, her route into politics was in many ways a coincidental one. We talk about her journey into politics and when she started to develop a passion for the environment. But what is also fascinating is how she has to operate in the House of Commons as the only MP in her party. It comes with all sorts of challenges. She does not have a whip's office or other support in place that most MPs can count on. And I have learned a great deal throughout the conversation, even though I've worked in Westminster for a long time myself. Caroline was chosen for the Patchwork Foundation's MP of the Year Award for the Judge's Special Recognition Award. And if you haven't heard of Patchwork Foundation, they are a great charity working to promote, encourage and support the active participation of young people from disadvantaged and minority communities in British democracy and civil society. And each year, the Patchwork Foundation recognises MPs who have gone above and beyond, to help support their community and groups in need as a way to remind MPs and voters alike that representation is integral to our society. And at the end of the episode, I am joined by a brilliant patch worker who actually talks about his own personal experience of how the Foundation has supported him, but also others. Caroline, thank you so much for joining What Were You Thinking? Uh, It is... Thank you. Yeah, it's great it's great to see you and um I was very keen to interview you anyway but as a result of you winning the Patchwork Foundation and P of the Year Special Recognition Award which by the way is the first time that award has ever been given so extra congratulations. Um, but that's sort of the reason you're here today um because we've been thinking to support Patchwork Foundation throughout this series. Um, so yes, welcome.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be with you.
0: And so why don't we start off by um, delving into some of the issues that were highlighted for you winning uh, this particular award. And so there's, there's, quite a, there's quite a long list of areas that you've campaigned on that were highlighted, including uh, disabilities and long term illness, uh, young homeless and care leavers and also domestic abuse of course, that is on top of all the other work you do on environmental issues, but why don't we um, talk about the work you've done for the young homeless and care leavers first?
1: Well, thank you uh, again for the opportunity to uh, to be with you. And and yes, I was really uh, honored to have been given this award by Patchwork. I, I do think they do amazing work in terms of, of really enabling people to feel that they can make a real difference to the political system, which I think is, is so important. I guess my concern around um, young homeless in particular stems from my experience here in Brighton. Brighton is an amazing place to live and and represent, but it does have its social problems, and probably the biggest problem, and the one that fills my mailbag to the greatest extent is around the lack of affordable housing in the city. You know, so many people live in Brighton and commute to London, and that means that the um, cost of of housing goes up. Um, many people come to Brighton just because they um, know that the services are here are very good, but perhaps they don't actually have somewhere to live here, and so we have a kind of cumulative problem that 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 gets worse and and worse. Um, and I was just particularly concerned about some of the national policies that exacerbate that. And, and one of those policies is around what happens to um, care leavers when they hit um, certain age points in their in their journey through the care system and so for example care leavers on their 22nd birthday suddenly face a a, a massive drop in housing benefit and it just feels like people who are already in care have already had quite a a tough start in their lives Um, they might just be beginning to get their lives together and they might be just planning now how they're going to um, uh, operate independently And yet suddenly getting this this drop in housing benefit on their 22nd birthday was obviously a a massive problem. Um, We've raised it now with ministers, so we had all kinds of campaigns with parliamentary questions, early day motions, meeting with the minister and so forth. And the good news is that he has said that this will get changed, but not for another couple of years. Well, if it's important enough to change, then it's important enough to change right now. So the the battle still goes on for that. but it just felt like it was an example of, of you know, a policy that probably most people don't even know about. Most people perhaps don't come into contact with people who have been living in care or people who are now struggling with, with housing. And it just feels really important to shine a spotlight on those areas of policy that can make a huge difference in people's lives, even though that you know, they're not particularly high on, on, on the political agenda.
0: Mm. And what was the response with other parliamentarians? Did you get a lot of support from MPs from other parties?
1: To be fair, this is something that did have a lot of cross-party support. I think everybody recognised it was a bit of an anomaly, really. I don't think anyone's deliberately setting out to to penalise care leavers, but it was just one of those policies that hadn't been properly thought through. It had this perverse impact. Um, And I think it did feel important to to have that cross-party support. And I think again just coming back to Patchwork for a moment, I think one of the things that Patchwork does so well is to identify areas of common concern across the different political parties and really try to put party difference aside and just focus on making change happen Um, and that feels really important.
0: Yeah and so and um, campaigning on homelessness I think is something you've been doing for quite some time isn't it?
1: Absolutely. Um, Again, coming back to the issue of of the lack of affordable housing, one of the issues in in, in, in our city in Brighton is about the the spiralling cost of private rent, the private rented sector. um, is so important to so many people because there's so little council housing or social housing. and so a lot of people are stuck in this cycle of, of extraordinarily high private rents. So they'll never be able to save up for, uh, for, for a mortgage, for example, to get their deposit. Um, they're paying a huge amount of their weekly income on rent. The quality of the, of the housing is often not good. Um, and until, well, still now really, although some small changes have been made, the, the power relation between tenant and landlord is very much in the hands of, of, of the landlords. One of the things the green Party has been pressing for would have been to have um, some level of rent control and they do this in other countries without any problem it's very strange how it's always met with such resistance um, certainly by the government the current government in terms of something that we might do here but at its at its mildest what you could just do would be to put in a law that would say that rents cannot increase more uh, steeply than the rate of inflation that would have at least some benefit although in a sense it would only stabilize the status quo it wouldn't actually address the current high levels of rent what the green party would like to do is to go further to set up what we're calling a living rent commission which would look at ways over time and I appreciate it would need to be over time but nonetheless how over time you could begin to bring down the cost of rent uh, over a period in a way that wouldn't penalize the landlords but would mean that we get to some kind of fairer settlement because right now you know you know, there are so many people that simply cannot afford to live in the city, people who've grown up here, but then, you know, when they when they leave home, there's no way that they can stay here. Not enough affordable housing is being built, and we know that's been a problem for many, many years, but it feels like it's just such a crucible of problems, because if you don't have a secure roof over your head, then all of those other problems that you might face with mental health or with getting a job, all of those are exacerbated tenfold if you don't have that basic security at home.
0: Mm. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And then just on the other other area that was highlighted by patchwork um, is your work around domestic abuse, which has always been important but is now with lockdown even more important than ever. What are your views on that and what are your concerns? Or, you know, what are your concerns around this this new lockdown that has just started?
1: I guess my concerns around the the, the new lockdown are that all of the evidence we've had from previous lockdowns is that home isn't a safe place for an awful lot of women. And, you know, staying at home can sound sometimes quite a cozy thing to do, but for some people it's a life sentence and, and that's not an exaggeration. We know that um, the demands on refugees goes up, um, maybe not immediately during the lockdown, because ironically it's often harder to make an escape at that point or to make the phone call, but after the lockdown lifts, then suddenly there's a greater demand on on refuge places. We know that for, again, many years, sadly, not enough money has been going into the network of refugees um, across the country. And, you know, every year we're always making extra demands of government at budget time to say, please, will you properly fund the network of women's refugees across across the country and make sure that that funding is something that is predictable and long term, not something that means that they're lurching from one settlement to the next, not knowing if they're going to be able to to do the the, the vitally important work that that they do. Here in Brighton, we are blessed with a fantastic uh, women's organisation, RISE, um, and they they are a fantastic campaigning organisation, as well as being a a refuge for for those, anybody who's who's seeking uh, refuge from, from violence. One of the things I've been working on with them um, which was mentioned through the, the through the work with Patchwork was the um, work on the Domestic Abuse Bill. Basically we were trying to get an amendment passed to guarantee anonymity for those reporting domestic abuse to the police in order to encourage them to come forward and to protect them from further abuse once they do. Um, the difficulty is that if, you're, if you know if you make a complaint to the police that your name is going to be splashed all over the local papers, then that obviously puts you at greater risk. Um, we didn't, sadly, get the amendment passed uh, this time around ar- ar- in the Commons. I- I'm hoping that it might get greater support in the Lords. Um, a lot of there was a lot of, of support for for the proposal, um, sadly, not yet from from the government. And I appreciate that there are always issues when you're talking about keeping names out of the media. You know, you have to get a balance uh, in, mm. in terms of. Um, of, of what is fair and, and what is, you know, fair to, to reporting and, and, and free speech and so forth. But I think the weight of evidence suggests that um, by, by not enabling anonymity in, in this case, what we're doing, in a sense, is, is um, discouraging women from, from coming forward and, and, and reporting abuse. And I think that is the greater the greater concern here.
0: Mm. Yeah. So why don't we find out which individual has uh, had a particular impact on your thinking, uh, Caroline? Well, I'm going to,
1: there's a lot, (laughs) but the person I'm going to choose is someone I just would love to have more of a focus on, even though sadly, um, more than sadly, tragically, appallingly, she was murdered. But her name is Petra Kelly. I don't know if you've ever come across her, but she was one of the co-founders of the German Green Party. And she was, Um, just such a whirlwind of of energy and clarity and passion for the green cause and um, I've read some of her books and I had the privilege to meet her um, back in the early 90s when I was a a county councillor in Oxfordshire and she was coming to speak at the Oxford Union um, because back in those days, and I appreciate now it does seem quite a quite a long time ago um, but but she did have a, a a real level of fame you know she met the uh, well she frequently met you know presidents of the united states she met she met um, uh, you, you know the heads of the u n she was a passionate campaigner for nuclear disarmament um, and again sort of looking back to those to those earlier days, I got into green politics through through CND, through the campaign for nuclear disarmament that was very big in my own sort of political journey. Um, and so I took real inspiration from her clarity uh, about the uh, the dangers from, from, from nuclear weapons. Um, she was a passionate feminist. Um, she, I, I have an image of her, a picture of her walking into the German Bundestag, because she was amongst the first Greens to get elected back in the early eighties in Germany. Um, and there was a group of of them and they and they walked into the Bundestag, you know, wearing their jeans and, and sweaters, but carrying armfuls of sunflowers. And it just seemed to be such a a beautiful representation of of this new political force coming into the sort of the gray walls and, and, and the gray suited men, primarily uh, in, in the German parliament at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, she uh, she worked you know night and day and, and one of the things I love about her was that she almost always replied to people who wrote to her and and being an MP now and just seeing the size of, of the mailbag not just from your own constituents obviously you reply to your own constituents but you know when people are writing to you from all over the country I'm sure I, I only experience a tiny amount of what she did um, uh, and, and she didn't have the same kind of electronic means as, as, as we do now because I'm, I'm talking sort of 30 years ago uh, and yet she did kind of reply to, to just about everybody who ever contacted her so she was this young passionate woman who who led a movement and, and sparked a movement and um, I, I still take a lot of inspiration from her.
0: That's, that's beautiful yeah that does sound very powerful indeed and so I mean, there's lots of things we're back about but I, <laughs> I'm keen to ask you but because <laughs> how well let's start you know I'd love to know how how you got into um you know being so passionate about um, green issues but but one of the things that you mentioned is you know getting a lot of mail obviously you reply to your constituents and you're well known for being a very strong constituency MP but as the only MP for the Green Party um that probably does mean that you get a lot more mail than um average MP would and so how does how does that work?
1: Well I this is an opportunity to give a real shout out to my amazing team uh, because it really is a team effort and I am so uh, lucky to have such a a committed group of people working with me and kind of to to be to be fair and to to put the kind of burden in perspective what I also get as the only uh, MP for my party is, is, is an amount of what's called short money. Short money is money that is allocated to opposition parties uh, in proportion to the number of votes uh, that they got at the most recent election. And it's used to, um, to employ staff essentially to, to, to help you um, with, your, with your work. Um, and because I'm the only MP, that meant that the short money does come to me. So that did enable me to employ a couple more people than mm. an average backbench MP, if you like. So that has been a lifesaver without that, it really would be impossible um, mm. so, so 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 I, so I have a, a a small team, and they all work well beyond their hours i'm afraid um, and they do fantastic work and, and so on on a practical level, um, it feels like I do have that that sort of administrative and research support. but I guess there's still only one of me <laughs> and um, I think one of the things I find most difficult is is the prioritization, you know, at any given moment, if I look at my diary, there's at least six things that I should be doing at any one moment and I can only be at one of them. And, you know, on the one hand you can say, well, yes, just prioritize, but you know, there's a meeting on the climate crisis, there's a meeting on biodiversity loss, there's a meeting on affordable housing in my constituency, you know, how do you do all of that? And I I find that really hard because you kind of want to do all of them and yet what I've learned, um, if I've learned anything is, you know d- doing a little bit of everything is very dissatisfying and not very effective and um, one of the things that i appreciate most when i was very first elected um uh an mp who uh was a green mp from australia who happened to be in the uk and she'd been a sole mp in australia uh, for the green party and um i didn't know her but she she sought out a meeting with me and she said I've, I've come to meet you with one message from my experience as a sole mp on australia and i said oh, great you <laughs> know what is it and she just said prioritize you cannot do everything if you try to do everything you will go mad just pick one or two issues and do those to the best of your ability mm-hmm. and that was very good advice and i do try to remember that when i'm kind of looking at my overflowing inbox and just thinking this is impossible yeah i do try well, when you're but even just prioritizing climate you know, is, is, is a very big issue to, to prioritize, you know, and, and that is what I do try and put at the top of my agenda, because I'm thinking if the Green Party isn't the party that's talking about the climate, then, then, you know, that, that's an abdication yeah. of, of the responsibility we have to really push the government to be much more ambitious than they are. Yeah. Uh, but even within the climate agenda, there is so much.
0: Because it is fascinating due to the, the political system in, in the UK, you have that responsibility as as the sole MP for that political party, which has a very clear agenda, but you're also a constituency MP and therefore need to be across all of those areas that you just outlined that happen in parliament, you get contacted about and lead to you being recognized by Patchwork Foundation. So you're clearly doing, you know, a, a great deal, but then prioritizing that, gosh, I just think, you know, all of those things are arguably important. I, I on a personal level, I, I, I think it'd be very good advice to me but i would struggle <laughs> to know what <laughs> what to prioritize so yeah i can imagine that being a a daily a daily struggle mm. and so is it um i think you've spoken about this before but is it is it isolating um not having green colleagues in parliament
1: yeah it, it is i mean i you know a shout out to to, to those and other parties who have been incredibly friendly and and I work very closely with, with Plaid Cymru uh, and, uh, and some in the, in the SNP, the Welsh and, and Scottish parties. Um, and, and at the very beginning, they were, they were just so helpful because that sense of arriving on the first day of being elected back in 2010 and having absolutely no idea, <laughs> you know, I couldn't find my way around. I was constantly getting lost in the House of Commons because it's just lots of very dark corridors with books on either side and, and you know, the smell of school dinners and um and you know the only the only thing i kind of really worked out was that when the green carpets turn into red carpets you know you've strayed into the house of lords but so i knew i shouldn't go there but you know otherwise i was just literally getting lost the whole time uh not understanding half of the language you know because there's this whole sort of mystification around around you know a division lobby what the hell's a division lobby it's a vote well why don't you just call it a vote you know Uh, and 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 just the whole place is riddled with language that makes you feel like an outsider and I don't think it's done by accident I think you know the powers that be have rather enjoyed having their clubbish atmosphere that makes so many people women in particular probably feel that they're out of place and one of the very first Things I did as, a, as an MP when I was elected was, was to um, pen a little report called, called you know The Case for Parliamentary Reform because I was just so shocked at the way in which Parliament works. Um, in so many ways it's, it's so undemocratic. I remember you know a massive row on the floor of the House, um, in other words in the, in, the, in the Westminster Chamber, when I had proposed that um, when people put down an amendment to a piece of legislation they should also be obliged to write a very short explanation of the amendment in just like 50 words. So that would appear on the order paper as well. The reason I did that was because in the European Parliament, where I sat for 10 years previously, that was mandatory. You had to do that. When you put an amendment, you know, you, an amendment might say in paragraph three, subsection C, little point two, replace and with or. And for you to know what that means is is actually a significant investment of your time. And when you've got hundreds of amendments, you know, you you just can't keep on top of it all. And the point is that most MPs don't keep on top of it all because their whips are telling them which way to vote. So when the Mm. division bell goes, in other words, there's a bell to tell you there's a vote. Most other MPs will get a text into their telephone saying vote yes or no. Mm. I'm there thinking, I don't know what I'm doing here. (laughs) At least I would be if it were not for the fact. My father all over this and trying to work it all out, yeah. but anyway, when I was proposing this amendment, I would say that this explanatory statement, explaining what the uh, what the amendment was about, you know, there was such a pushback from the government benches. You know, they'd have thought I was suggesting something absolutely horrendous. But what it came down to was that the whips understood very well that if more MPs knew what they were voting on, they might just object to it. And I had seen people. You know, when you when you vote in the Commons, as you know, you file through the I lobby, you file through the no lobby, You know, perish the thought that we might actually have electronic voting so that each vote would take less than a minute instead of 20 minutes, which is the time it takes currently. But I literally saw people protesting to their whips saying, no, I don't think I want to vote in this way. And the whips physically pushing them into the lobby because the rule is once you've stepped over the threshold of the voting lobby, you can't reverse and come out again. I mean, this is ludicrous. Anyway, so that's just a little snapshot into the madness of the of, of, of Westminster and how it still needs. There are small improvements have happened, but it still mm. needs to be dragged into the century. So, is
0: one of your men, um, your team, sort of like takes on sort of like whip duties, as it were, in a way that they then yeah. go through that all, and I mean, it apply.
1: depends on what the. Uh... Yeah no definitely some poor person is spending a lot of time going through all of that which is not necessarily the best use of their time and slowly it's becoming slightly more it's not still not mandatory but but more people are putting down explanatory statements on their amendments which does help yeah. a lot it does speed the whole process up.
0: God it is fascinating yeah it is fascinating insight because that is that must be very time consuming and quite the skill because as you allude to but the text is by no means uh, straightforward uh, at the best of times. So you have to really know, <laughs> have a sort of legal, legal mind as well. So yeah, that, that's really interesting. So um, what place would you say has had an impact on your thinking?
1: I really struggle with this one. Um, I guess it's not so much an impact on my thinking, but, but it's been a way of reinforcing the importance of of protecting nature and, and and that would be to say that for years and years and years and years every summer um we go to Anglesey because my husband's family have been going there ever since he was very small um, and and so it it's become a part of the of the of the UK that I really appreciate and 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 just the exposure to nature and you know the the the, the coast there is is like nothing else landwin Island a little a little Island off um, uh, uh, of Anglesey and um, is 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 just such a beautiful place and um, the birds you know the curlews um, that you can hear just as you as you walk along uh, it, it is wonderful and um, so I suppose it's a place that speaks to to the importance of nature and protecting nature and and enjoying it actually. Um, one of the campaigns I've been involved in as well has been around trying to get a GCSE in natural history. Um, I was really inspired by, by a woman called Mary Colwell, who um, is a, a broadcaster and writer, uh, actually an expert in, in Curlews. And, and it was her idea that what we should do is to try to make sure that more young people are coming through our education system with a greater understanding of, of nature. and And that really spoke to me because there's a quote I really love which says that people won't protect what they don't love and they won't love what they don't know and when you consider that the UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world um, it's so vital that that we have a generation of, of, of young people coming through who who know what we face losing like the curlew um and and therefore will be more passionate about protecting it and and The idea of this natural history GCSE is not that it would just be another science uh, qualification that you're learning in the classroom, although part of it, of course, would be that, but it would be a much more um, empirical uh, fieldwork based course where where you really are learning about the nature on your doorstep and you don't have to be out in the wilds of 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 the countryside to do that you know as as Mary will often say there's quite often more biodiversity in a city center park than there is you know in the fields of East Anglia because we've coated so much of it with pesticides and so forth so it it links for for me it links very much to 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 myself trying to um, make space and time to to enjoy nature and to just recognize what a what a massive part in our lives it, it, it plays, and and again, just talking about how coronavirus has reinforced that, I was I was just so interested to see, you know, all of the evidence of of how public parks and green spaces has been so much more important to people um, when they when they when they are in lockdown and realize that is that you know that what they depend on in terms of their mental health as well as their physical health. Um, just just that ex- access to green space, even the access you know to to, to the sight of a tree through the window c- can, can be life-saving mm. and um, and yes and so the going back to the place uh, Nibra Warren and Landon Island and that part of, of, of Anglesey is is what kind of sums that up for me.
0: That's very nice. And so how when when in your life did you start to get really interested in these issues? Is it from a very young age or? What, what was your journey?
1: I think I was quite a late developer, actually. So it wasn't it wasn't from a very young age, um, and it and it was actually as a, as, as I've referenced before, through coming um, being concerned around around nuclear weapons um, back in the early eighties, which feels like another lifetime ago. But um, there were a lot of films. Things like there was a film called Nineteen Eighty Four, and 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 there were other films. Um, all about the dangers of a of a nuclear accident, and it felt very real. It, it's 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 funny how um, you know people. That's more more on nuclear power, but 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 it's funny how people have have minimised the existing threats from nuclear weapons, even though we've still got we've got more of them now than we than we did then, um, and. Yeah, so 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 I I got very involved in the campaign for nuclear disarmament because I it it felt like a very very real threat, Um, and then I read a book from Jonathan Porritt called Seeing Green, which I think he wrote in about eighty four, and I read it in eighty six, and it's just one of those light bulb moments when lots of the things that I've been concerned about, primarily the nuclear threat, but also feminism or or environmental concerns and so forth, and it and it tied up all of these, of these issues in, in, in one kind of analysis and set forward a sort of a, a, a set of political proposals that would address all of them. And that was kind of the proposals from the Green Party. So it really was that light bulb moment. It was, it was because of my concern with, with um, nuclear weapons that I came across the book. I used to volunteer a day a week while I was at university at the local CND shop, and the CND shop sold a, a range of books, one of which, as it transpired, was this Seeing Green by Jonathan Porritt, and um, so, so I read the book, and, and at the time I read the book, actually, by the time I read that, I was in London uh, in a bedsit in a Clapham uh, doing my PhD, and, uh, and I remember closing the book just feeling utterly inspired, and seeing on the back of the book that it said that the Green Party offices we in the Clapham High Road, and there I was in this bed sitting Clapham, and it just sort of felt real synchronicity. So I literally put down the book and walked out of the bed sit and marched up and down the Clapham High Road, looking for what I fondly imagined would be a, a, a significant building with a plaque on the wall saying the Green Party. And eventually, I came across this sort of um, back room by, by, a, by a Chinese restaurant, <laughs> which was the <laughs> Green Party office. <laughs> but so I so I walked in and, and, and joined up there and then. I worked for them for a couple of years as their press officer really because they couldn't afford anybody who was properly qualified to be a press officer so I was able to persuade them that my PhD in 16th century literary romance was entirely relevant to being the press officer for the Green Party. I have no idea how many other people (laughs) are the job I suspect. (laughs) Not very many Um, but it was an extraordinary time so I I served as their national press officer between 1987 uh, yeah 87 and 89 and of course what happened in those two years was that there was a massive um, increase in in, um, interest in the environment. Uh, And in the European elections of 1989, the Green Party had 15% of the results, which was extraordinary, 15%. I mean, at at, at that time, the European elections were still under first past the post. Now they're under proportional representation. Back then they were still first past the post, which meant that even though we got 15% of the result, we didn't win any seats. Uh, but it was an extraordinary time to see the the, the growth of, of of environmental awareness and, and green politics between '87 and '89. I suppose just to finish the journey, sorry, I won't give you my whole life story, but. May go ahead. Having worked as their press officer in a, in a paid capacity for a couple of the years, <clears throat> I then moved to Oxford, <clears throat> and I was working for for Oxfam. Um, in the, it's my day job, if you like, but uh, very involved with the with the party in terms of, of the national organization of the party. I was on the National Council. Uh, I then stood as a councillor in Oxfordshire and served as a, as a county councillor in Oxfordshire between um, 93 and 97, I think, uh, and then in 99. Um, by that time they had changed the voting system for the European elections. So I stood for the European elections for the Southeast region in 1999 and, and won the first green seat alongside Jean Lambert who won the, the seat in London. So the two of us uh, went off to, 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 to Brussels in, in uh, 1999, which was a fascinating experience. And, uh, and I spent 10 years as, a, as an MEP.
0: Yeah, so how much, how much more bureaucracy is there to plow through in Brussels European Parliament? Versus the UK Parliament, or is it is it quite similar?
1: I, I think the European Parliament was 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 ten times simpler, and certainly the induction was 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 ten times better. Um, you know, and I, I know that the, the, the mythology of 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 Brussels bureaucracy and 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 in certain areas, I'm I'm not denying that there is plenty of it. But uh, as a member of the European Parliament, um, the support that we got. Uh, and, and I suppose it was different because by, by being a member of the of the Green group in the European Parliament when when Jean and I were first elected, there were 30 other greens from other countries who were who were there. So we were part of a, a much bigger block. Um, and alongside that came all of the, the you know the, the, the support for a whole set of, of subject advisors. And, and you know we were part of the furniture in a way. We were We were an established political party within the European parliamentary setting. And that's a very different experience from being just one green in the Commons. I should say that there are, there are two greens now in the House of Lords. Um, but as the only green in the Commons, that sense of, of not yet being properly part of the, of the structures is still there. For example, for some strange reason, parliamentary processes don't really recognise you as a party unless there are three of you. In other words, I don't know if you've heard this expression, the usual channels, you know, when, when a decision is to be made, you know, mm. about perhaps when, when Parliament will sit or not sit, then people will gaily say, oh, well, well, we'll make that decision through the usual channels. And the usual channels means the whips from each party getting together and sorting it out. Well, as a member on my own, I don't have a whip. I'm not allowed a whip. I can't, I can't be my own whip. And therefore, I'm not in those meetings. And that makes me really angry because I have every much as right and my constituents have every much as right. For me to have the information that every other MP gets through having a whip and being part of the usual channels. And so another sort of battle I've been fighting is to say that everyone should have access to that information and it shouldn't be channeled through through Mm. such a closed system. So yeah, my experience in, in, in the European Parliament, although there were plenty of things that were Bizarre about that, not least the the monthly circus of having to go to Strasbourg for for a week and and you know the extra cost and environmental impact of of having all of these MPs tipping out of Brussels and going off to Strasbourg. You know there are plenty of things to say that that needed to be changed, but actually my personal experience of what that political process was like was was a lot
0: more comfortable, if you like, a lot a lot easier mm.
1: in, in Brussels than it, than it has been in London.
0: Interesting, and. Um... Coming back to climate change and and the environmental issues, what are the, I mean, in many ways, the two biggest parties are more vocal on environmental issues uh, and climate change um, over the years. And also the public, I think, are far more attuned to it and in particular young young, uh, voters uh, deeply care about this issue, increasingly so. How do you view that that journey, that those those parties that have been on and um, are on?
1: I guess I would just say it's been tragically slow. You know, when I look back, you know, even to the eighties, we knew that climate change was happening. Um, and if we had acted when we should have done, you know, we could have protected so many people and so many parts of the world from the kind of ravages that they're undergoing even now. So. I just think the tragedy is that there has been no urgency behind this issue. And, and in many ways, there still isn't. You know, so even though we now have a, a government that um, you know, has, has, has proudly said it's going to host the next uh, big climate meeting, the Conference of the Parties in, in, in Glasgow uh, later this year, um, e- even though they recognize that that means that they need to be stepping up, they are still pursuing policies that are diametrically opposed to to being a a leader on climate change and and, and one example of that would be the 27 billion pound road building program to which they are still completely committed you know you've got a chancellor who will stand up and say how proud he is to be announcing this funding for the biggest ever expansion of roads in England Um, and they don't see any contradiction between saying that on Tuesday and on Wednesday, you know, climb, claiming some kind of, of climate leadership. So there's an utter lack of, of joined up thinking here. And although there are, you know, there are, there are individuals in all parties who who really do get it, there still isn't in, in, in either of, of or in, indeed in any of the other parties, I would say, that kind of joined up coherent set of packages together with the urgency that's needed to really mean that that climate um, is, is, is put at the top of the agenda. And you would think, you know, through the experience of COVID, that we would have learnt that taking preventive action saves us so much pain and so much money. And by that I'm saying that many people warned of pandemics long before COVID happened. We knew that by expanding deforestation, intensive agriculture, the illegal wildlife trade. That we were running real risks in terms of producing the perfect circumstances for diseases to jump from animals to, to humans so-called zoonotic diseases and we've known that for a long time and and we did nothing to stop it and now we have covid and to my horror it still feels that in all of the reams and reams that are written about the coronavirus crisis so little is actually spent looking at the the the, the behavior that made that zoonotic disease far more likely to happen. We still are not addressing that. And it feels like with all of the reams that is written about climate change, we are not really still getting to grips with the fact that an economy that is based on more and more growth, production and consumption in the Northern countries in particular, is not compatible with being serious about getting our emissions down fast enough. Mm. And that's one of the reasons that I'm really glad to have been working with a group of scientists and campaigners uh, and, um, and supporters around what is called the Climate and Ecological Emergency Bill. This is a, a private member's bill that I've put down in parliament and uh, it, it won't get uh, parliamentary time anytime soon, but it's interesting that our existing climate legislation, um, the Climate Change Act that we have in this country, it started its life as a private member's bill. Um, and, and it grew with, with support behind it and eventually we got a Climate Change Act agreed. And that Climate Change Act now, I would argue, is, is out of date. The targets are not ambitious enough. It doesn't include things like emissions from aviation and shipping or consumption emissions. Um, uh, and, and, and it doesn't talk about nature and, and biodiversity either. So, so what we're trying to do, this, this group of us, and, and it does now have increasing support from all of the opposition parties, is to have this climate and ecological emergency bill, which would which would start that process of saying we need to massively up our game. Net zero by 2050 is nowhere near ambitious enough. Net zero by 2050 is like saying we've got a climate emergency, we ring 999, but we ask for the fire brigade to come in 30 years time. You know, we need action now, and that is what this bill seeks to achieve. And it's very exciting. There's a There's a whole sort of movement now behind what's being called the c C C-E-E, standing for Climate and Ecological Emergency, because it's such a a mouthful. Um, But if anyone listening were were minded just to to Google c Alliance, um, they will see a whole range of ways that they can get involved locally um, and and really make their voice heard because we've got councils now up and down the country declaring climate emergencies and and parliament itself has declared a, a climate emergency. And that's great as a first step, but, but it is only the first step because there's got to be action that therefore follows as a result of declaring an emergency. Mm. And that is what this bill kind of sets out.
0: You, you mentioned aviation. And I think recently, or I don't know exactly when, when it was, but I think you stated that, um, you know, this before COVID, when <laughs> flights were still going, that people shouldn't sort of have a limit on flying. But I was just curious to know as to how... Would you weigh up restrictions, sort of, on personal choice versus policy and the business action?
1: I think fairness and 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 justice needs to be at the heart of our approach to to all of these questions. And so, when it comes to aviation, I think it is important to recognise that actually, it's a very small number of people, relatively speaking, flying very often. That is the biggest problem. Mm. And so one of the measures that I think makes most sense when we're looking at how do you kind of allocate the, 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 the right to fly, if you like, to, to the extent that such a thing exists, in an equitable manner, then one of, one of the best measures I've seen is, is something that's called a frequent flyer levy. And, and what that would do would basically mean that for, 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 for a person, a family, for example, making one flight a year, it wouldn't affect the price of, of that flight. But as soon as you start to take two, three, four, five flights a year, the cost of those flights would ratchet up massively and would be a a really serious deterrent. And so what it would try to do would be to say, you know, I I don't think it's my my role to to lecture other people about about how often they should fly. But if we could try to put in a a policy structure that would send really clear signals to people, then I think you can get something closer to a more equitable way of, of, of allocating the amount of, of, of emissions if you like that, that that is fair to emit through aviation and I was really struck by earlier well actually not earlier this year last year now there was a the, the UK had its very first national climate change assembly which was a citizens assembly brought together by a number of select committees in parliament and what happened was that people met and they were chosen um, in such a way that they were genuinely representative of, of the views in the country so there were people in, in that group who, who were uh, very sceptical about, about the seriousness of climate change, just as there were people who were very concerned about it. Uh, and that group met over a, over a number of months, uh, received lots of um, independent uh, evidence and, and and information. And one of the conclusions they came up with was exactly that this frequent fly levy would be the fairest way to um, to, 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 to move forward on aviation. So to me, making sure that social justice is at the heart of, of the transition to a zero carbon economy is so important. I'm a co-chair of a commission that's been set up by IPPR, the, um, the think tank, mm. public policy research think tank. And, um, and what we're doing with that, with that piece of work is absolutely trying to make sure that every environmental policy that's put forward is properly tested, if you like, from a social justice angle because we're not gonna get out of the climate crisis by by making the poorest pay the highest price. And, mm. you know, sometimes you can see the impact of that. For example, in Paris, M- President Macron introduced, didn't he, the um, the increase in, in uh, fuel duty, which among other things led to that massive backlash, the so-called gilets jaunes, the big uprising of people mm. in France saying, you know, lots of people for whom uh, being able to you know, use a van to get to work to do the work that they did was actually crucial. So if you if you just simply whack up the price of fuel, but you don't look at the distributional impacts and you don't think about, well, what are they about those people who actually do depend on on a vehicle because there's no other alternative, because, you know, either because they live in rural areas and there's rubbish public transport or because their job is absolutely, you know, in, inherently dependent on, on being able to use public uh, private transport. Then, if you don't build that in, then there's a massive backlash. So, to, to me, yeah, behaviour change is important, but more important, in a sense, is to put in place the policy framework that makes it easier for people to be able to do the the less carbon intensive thing.
0: And what's the object that has impacted your thinking?
1: The object. Well, I was trying to think what what to to um to say on that, and <laughs> it, I was. I've actually not got it anymore, and that's part of the story. So what I wanted to do when I was um, sort of sworn in, in in Parliament in 2010 was to bring something with me that would remind me and be a symbol of the fact that I wanted to make sure that I put the people of Brighton Pavilion first, because what people did in Brighton in 2010 was pretty extraordinary, against all the odds. You know, they voted for a party that had never had national um, representation before, and I felt you know hugely humbled and and, and honored to, to, to have been in that position and I wanted to do something that would say I'm going to put the people of Brighton Pavilion first in all of my decision making so I brought a pebble from the beach to Westminster to hold in my hand as I was being sworn in as, as a kind of symbol to myself of, of, um, of putting the interests of, of Brighton Pavilion first and then what I thought in my naivety, was this nice symbolic gesture? It suddenly became Pebblegate, and I was on the front page of the local newspaper uh, in a ma- in a bad way for having st- stolen a pebble from Brighton Beach and <laughs> brought it out to Parliament. And of course, it is the case you're not meant to go around uh, taking pebbles off the beach. So I did go and put it back afterwards. <laughs> but it's it's um it's been a good uh, reminder in many ways. I mean, I, I do still remember to put the people of Brighton first. I hope. Um, but it also has reminded me that you just need to be careful about things that you think are um, positive gestures can get coverage in the papers in ways that you might not always imagine. So I or guess that's a, yeah. <laughs> a way of remembering as well.
0: <laughs> always be on guard, yeah and so i'll finish off with some very quick fire questions um but i've um enjoyed asking all my guests and so the first one is um who would your favorite mp be from another party which obviously your case um <laughs> it's a big pool to pick from but uh yeah i was curious you've already mentioned some parties but is there a particular mp that you'd like to give a shout out to
1: I give a shout out to Clive Lewis. I love Clive Lewis. He's the uh, Labour MP for Norwich South. We work um, very closely together on things like um, we have an all party group on the Green New Deal and we're co-chairs together. There's another all party group on on limits to growth uh, and he's very active in that as well. And uh, I take a great deal of inspiration from him. I think he's brilliant.
0: And what's your biggest bugbear in politics?
1: I mean, the first thing that jumped into my head would just be about, about, how parliamentary procedure is still so cumbersome and doesn't enable you to do what you want to do. So for example, Clive and I, I know you want quick fire questions, but very quickly, Clive Lewis and I were trying to table a private member's bill jointly because we wanted to demonstrate cross-party working and this is supposed to be the future, right? And yet parliamentary process is such that you cannot have a parliamentary bill in two people's names, you just cannot. And however much we tried to bring them into the 21st century, they weren't having it. So Mm -hmm. just those silly obstacles that stop you from getting done what needs to be done.
0: And finally, what's the best advice you've ever been given or would like to pass on?
1: Well, I've already mentioned one of them, which was about prioritizing and, 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 um, and, I, and I still do think that's important for anybody who's, who's you know, been elected or wants to be elected or even just as being, you know, active in um, in local politics. I mean, in, you know, in whatever way in local organizations and so forth. Um, so prioritization is important, but I guess, stepping back and and being wider than that, then then I do think sort of following your passions is is so important. You know, many people want to be involved in some way in trying to create a safer, better world and a a, a greener planet and and so forth. And, And quite often I get asked, you know, what's the best way to do it? And I do just think that it's going to be a long struggle, whatever you decide. And so it's better to decide to do something that that fits with what you're already passionate about, otherwise it's gonna be really difficult. So if you're a, you know, if you love gardening, then then get involved in that and, and, and look at organic gardening and and, and 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 be a voice for that. Or if you love music, then then that, that can still be a wonderful way of communicating around environment as as, as well. So follow your passion, but, but but see if you can do it in a way that also um, inspires
0: others to take action. That's wonderful, thank you so much for joining What Were You Thinking? So for this episode again, we are joined by a patch worker, Ross Hills. And so Ross, could you introduce yourself? We know your name already, but what's your age and what is your job title?
2: Of course, yeah, so so like you said, my name is Ross Hills. I'm 27 years old and I work as a general dentist in Leicestershire.
0: Awesome, so as a dentist, How did you discover Patchwork Foundation?
2: So I actually found Patchwork through a Facebook advert. They were looking for uh, volunteers to go on their uh, party conference programme, which kind of really excited me because I'd always been a bit of a politics nerd, but I'd never had any connections in politics. So none of my family were political, none of my friends were political. And whilst, you know, I'd love the idea of going to a party conference, I didn't know anyone that was a, a member of the party and the idea of kind of booking a hotel and going for the weekend was a bit too daunting. So the fact that, you know, there was a group that was um, set up just to take kind of first times to their party conference, show them around, and you've already got that kind of little network with you, uh, was really exciting to me. Um, so I went into the, the, the conference program a couple of years ago now, um, and then I did their year long masterclass program. Um, and since then I've uh, kind of helped out with some alumni and then a few the different alumni initiatives as well.
0: That's incredible. So what did the conference program entail? What did you get to experience?
2: Yeah, so um, what we do is you kind of go, we get a tour of the conference venue. Um, You're in a small group of about 10 people, kind of 10 young people. Um, And then for my conference, we had three masterclasses. So masterclasses are effectively like an hour long sit down, talk with um, a member of parliament, although they're not always a member of parliament, sometimes they're kind of leading civil servants sometimes they're charity leaders and um, for the conference programme these were members of parliament and so we had Joe Churchill Chris Grayling and I think Damian Collins off the top of my head um, you talked to them about your, their career their kind of entry into politics why they're passionate about it what advice they have for young people who want to get involved in politics um, it's very very broad, and kind of you ask the question so you find out what you want to know um, you're also then kind of given a tour of uh, fringe events. And so kind of we all did a, a conference quiz. And I am ashamed to say we didn't do very well at all. Uh, <laughs> and, but, you know, it was a lot of fun. Um, and actually on the final day, um, we were told that we'd get to meet the prime minister as well. So we got to meet Theresa May before her kind of big conference speech on the last day of conference. Wow. It was incredibly, incredibly exciting. Um, I kind of knew I wanted to continue with it. Um, so like I say, then we kind of did that year-long masterclass program, which you usually, usually once a month or so, and then you have that kind of sit down hour talk with the politician.
0: Sounds like you got real VIP treatment.
2: It was, it was. I wasn't expecting it to be honest, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to complain.
0: Yeah. And so I would imagine that, well, tell me like how, you know, how do you combine the two? So you're a dentist, but you obviously are interested in politics. So and is that where Patchwork is really, where, where Patchwork adds value for you? Or how does that work?
2: percent You know, I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in without the Patchwork Foundation um, and the kind of um, the support that people that run it have given me. Um, I moved to London when I started to study dentistry um, and, and again, had no political links or no experience whatsoever. Um, but I did the Patchwork programme and, and started talking to them about you know, that I wanted to put oral health back on the map and discuss oral health policy. Um, and uh, I went to my tutors at university and they, they weren't very helpful at all to be because they, they said that no one really does it, it's not a set career path. Um, but Patchwork just encouraged me and I actually ended up entering the competition called Policy Idol. Um, which is, so I went to King's College London um, and it's for all students, you can enter any policy. My policy is on water fluoridation. So adding fluoride to the water to kind of reduce uh, decay in children. Um, and I ended up winning two prizes, and, and off the back of that, I got to go and do my elective in the U.S. Because it a day in America. Yeah. Um, so if I hadn't done patchwork, I kind of, a, wouldn't have had the confidence to kind of research these policies. You know, I wouldn't have had um, some of the patchwork uh, staff to back me up and talk through the, the initiative. Um, so, you know, literally wouldn't be where I am. Um, but they also, kind of on the flip side, is how we get more involved with the party as well. So that's where I feel like I've improved on is that you can be an academic or you can be away from politics, you can be incredibly intelligent, but unless you have the links to the political system, you're going to struggle to get your voice heard. Um, and so I got involved in my local association, especially after I graduated and moved back to Leicestershire, um, and I'm actually now the association chairman. And again, it's wow. not of role that I would go for, especially as a young conservative, that I would have gone for if I hadn't have had the confidence that Patrick had given me.
0: Yeah. Well, this is very inspiring and it's really cool to hear like practical, real life scenarios and examples like that. And it's, that is, that's really cool. It's really nice to hear. So just as a final question, why for you, do you think we need, you know, what is it, what is the reason for you that we need greater diversity and inclusion in politics and civil society?
2: I think, You could approach from a very simple way that if you look at the studies, the more diverse your team is, the better results you get at the end of it, you know, and so that's just a very simple, boiled down way to look at it. On the other hand, I think right now we're too preoccupied in thinking people are analogue in politics. Um, You hear all the time about, you know, oh, this policy initiative is going to turn off the new, you know, Red wall voter and, and this and that, but people just don't think like that at the end of the day. Um, I think if we increase diversity within politics, um, we increase people that champion different causes, okay? So, like talking about oral health again, you know, when was the last time you heard of a dentist MP? Um, when was the last time you heard of a, an optician that was an MP? You know, we, we select from a very small group of people right now. Hmm. What that means is, is that a small group of people champion the causes that are close to them. And likely they do that, means that's why they're is as an MP but we need to kind of diversify the range of causes that we're actually championing, um, you know, putting our world kind of yeah. back on the map would be kind of my, my key thing.
0: That's, that's really well put. Thank you so much, Ross, for joining us. It's been a real, real, real inspiration. Pleasure. Absolutely pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This series is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival and you can become a friend of a Big Tent and receive the first three months completely free by entering the coupon code PODCAST. Friends benefit from invitations to exclusive intimate events with politicians and leaders and much, much more. Visit bigtent.org.uk for further details and to join. And if you have any requests for speakers or any specific questions to ask, You can email me on podcast at bigtent.org.uk or get in touch via Twitter. I'm at Laura Round.